podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Good evening, everybody. Steve Wellings here for another Nutters Call-In. It is Wednesday, the 6th of September, 2023. We have a crack panel joining us this evening so far. Hopefully some of the other boys and girls will jump on as and when they see fit. We have Matty DiGiannardo, my esteemed co-host. He's jumped on here. How's it going, Matty, over there in the United States of America? It's going well, Steve. I'm I'm just glad to be here at a time when there are two thirds Matts in in the uh, in the asylum uh, podcast right now. I feel like uh, the power has finally shifted, and I'm glad to be here for it. I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed, a bit outnumbered here, Matt Butters. To be honest with you, are you feeling the power <laughs> dynamic there over wherever you are? I I'm certainly feeling it over here. I mean. I can't believe it. We've got, we've got two mats versus one Steve. I think, you know, this is certainly the handicap uh, that the Boxing Asylum wasn't expecting tonight. But right now, all I'm doing is currently sitting in my room just contemplating my life because of how hot it is over here. Yeah, it's what's, absolutely what's the temperature? Man. What's the temperature over there? Oh, it's at least 21 degrees Celsius. 21, yeah. 21. I, don't know, I, don't, I don't know what that is in American numbers. I feel like that's like 85 or 90 Fahrenheit kind of in that That sounds range. hot, doesn't it? That, that's, that sounds hot. Oh, fuck, dude. When I was in Vegas with Donnie, it got was like 115, which is 37 or 8 or some fucking crazy number in Celsius. It was goddamn miserable. Fucking miserable. Man, yeah. Same <laughs> couldn't here. Even, the... Couldn't even drink alcohol. I would have fucking died. I had to drink water <laughs> like a bitch. <laughs> He's dehydrating over there. Matt Butters is sitting in his boxer shorts as we speak. He could be nude by the end of the pod. Who knows? There's one for you, ladies. I'm going to hit him with a question, try and cool him down a little bit here. A question from himself, no less. He sent this into the show last weekend. I'll put it on the screen for anybody who's watching this on YouTube. So Matt Butters said, I've seen a lot of posts calling for Bomac uh, to be training uh, of the year Sorry, after Crawford and now Eubank's big wins. But how much of Eubank's performance can we attribute to Bomac's influence? It seemed to me a combination of Smith's flat performance plus the return to Eubank's old fast combination punching that won him the match last Saturday against Liam Smith rather than any particular instruction Bomac gave him in the corner. Granted, it's impossible to know everything him and Eubank worked on together in camp. It's your question, Matt. They were only together for four weeks. Bomac mm. had other things on his mind, maybe, like trying, to, trying to smuggle guns into the country, <laughs> which obviously happened after last weekend's pod. Uh, what do you think about this question? You posed it to the panel, which Matty uh, asked on Sunday evening. Matt, what, what do you think about the answer here? Well, I'm probably going to sound like a bit of a flip-flopper, but uh, I actually think I was being slightly unfair on Bomac in hindsight. Um, mm-hmm. I listened back to the pod as well, and I, I do agree with, I can't remember who said, I think you might have been Matty who said it, uh, when it, it wasn't necessarily what Bomac was providing in terms of you know trying to dictate his style onto Eubank, but more so the environment that Eubank had you know the the quality sparring, the 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 quality the quality training. You know all all that does have an effect, even if it is just you know four or five weeks. So I, I do think, and I do think Bomac had a, a, a solid influence in that respect. Although me saying that, I I do also think that the majority of the reason why Eubank won was because he reverted back to his original style, and was because. Smith just didn't turn up that night, did he? You know, it's probably quite hard when you're on the Big John diet and you're going 42 pounds overweight, you know, coming down from near heavyweight uh, cut. I'm not surprised he turned up flat on the night, to be honest with you. But um, that's not Eubank's fault. You know, you beat the man in front of you. So 
it's just a shame really that uh the excuse has come out that is kind of almost trying to take things away from Eubank. But no, going back to the original point, I actually think Beaumont probably did put more of an effort in and, and more of an influence than I gave him credit for. And Matt, just before we move on, uh, you touched upon the back-to-basics approach. I mentioned this on Sunday as well. I know some of the Rob Kelly was a proponent of this as well. Whether it was down to Bomac or Eubank himself was thinking about this. Rather than doing the Roy Jones imitation, I think the high-octane, high-energy version of Eubank that throws a lot of punches, overwhelms people, is far better, Matt, than this sort of posing version. So that was definitely a stylistic improvement, I think. Going back to basics. Oh, absolutely. It, he couldn't have... I think a part of it was was because he was was because Liam was flat. He gained confidence, and you know he felt more confident to be able to throw you know five six punch combinations. Whereas obviously in the first fight, Liam kind of came out the blocks flowing, uh, throwing, uh, was uh, going in close most of the time. wasn't really allowing Eubank to to throw those shots. But you're right, you know uh, that overwhelming style that Eubank had previously. We hadn't seen it ever since he turned up with uh, Roy Jones and I think that coming away from him whether or not that's the Bomac influence or not has kind of allowed him to go back to who he actually was as a fighter uh, mm. may- maybe Roy Jones was just like every time he tried to throw combinations just like slapped him or something I don't know but, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> Bomac certainly has in- seems to have encouraged yeah the the, the, the combination style Yep, Matt's a proponent of that. I am as well. We've had a couple of new fellas jump on the call. We'll go to them shortly. Desi's with us, so is El Chupacabra. Steve, just uh, on the sad side of news, uh, someone posted in the chat that uh, Mike Stafford, former Adrian Broner trainer, uh, passed away. So it's been a bad week for the fat black trainer. For me, it has not. I saw Mike Stafford's name mentioned in one of the other chats. I think it was, I'm not sure which group it was, but I didn't even realise, Matty. Absolutely, RIP Mike Stafford. He once uh, put the phone down on me, but I'm not going to hold that against him. Obviously, that was in life. And Mike's probably just putting it down so he could pick up a sandwich. You can't, (laughs) uh, couldn't uh, be offended by that. So, uh, God bless bless you. Uh, you big, uh, big black son of a bitch. Uh, probably should have watched your weight a little bit, at less than all of y'all. Yeah, well, we may be able to echo those comments. I'm not quite sure, to be honest, Matty. We'll move on swiftly. Back to Bo Mac again. Lock and loaded coming into the UK. <laughs> he's, he's on a weight loss plan. <laughs> get locked loss away plan. for that... a year, a couple oh, of years. I hear a bit, it bit of shuffle brutal. in Pentonville or wherever he's going to end up. We'll do the weight loss, no harm, absolutely. What, what, what was he thinking, Matty? Uh, we know a few of the details. He's... he's um, sitting at the moment in a holding cell until October, as far as we know, which is a court date. They, they love shooting people over in America, as you well know. But over here, we take a bit of a dim view on the old gun culture, as far as I know. So what was, what was Bomac thinking? Where did he get this weapon from? Well, let's just rem- remember that in the like, past two or three months, you've had Deontay Wilder, uh, Devin Haney, and now Bomac, who have been arrested on gun charges. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, it is certainly an American culture thing. It's also a Black Hood culture thing. Um, it's, it's, it's weird. Like rednecks and, and, uh, black people from the hood were very much alike. If we could just admit it, uh, <laughs> there'd be a lot more peace in our country. But, um, what it seems like happened is he was, somebody tried to rob him last time he was over there. Must've been for the Ricky Burns fight. Um, I mean, mm. quite a ways back. And cause there was uh, a, a, uh, an interview with him where he said, he's like, yeah, someone tried to rob me over there last time. Ain't going to happen again. And they flew private over 
Um, but he was flying commercial back. So I that kind of sealed up some of my questions for me. I'd be like, I doubt he bought a gun on the streets of uh, London or Manchester. I mean, that's that's got to be expensive if you can track one down. I mean, considering there's none almost. Um, so he uh, so it seems like he probably had it with him when he flew over private, and then when he was going back over commercial, oops, had to go through all security, check the bag, blah blah blah, and he got caught with it. Um, foolish, you know, because um, you know, even if he would have gotten robbed over there, um, you know, if he would have used the gun in self defense. He probably still would have been in, gone to jail. I don't know how UK law works. It's not like, oh, it's like, look at that. You needed a gun and you had one. Now we'll let it pass. Um, I don't know if it would have worked that way. I think the mm. robber and him uh, being, you know, being dead and him being charged would have been a dual bad outcome there. Um, but I, it just seems like you made a big mistake here. And at this pivotal point in Terrence Crawford's career where he's at these historic moments, this is uh, definitely terrible news for him. It's a good thing that he has a training team. And I think at this point in time, I mean, if you hear him, he's a sharp fighter. Um, he, he's nobody's fool. Um, so I think he can can help piece some of this together himself. But it's rough losing a big member of the team like that. So um, it, it makes Terrence Crawford's career moving forward even more interesting. It's a strange move by Bomac, absolutely. Uh, Matty reminded me there, I was thinking of London prisons, but of course it was Manchester, isn't it? So who knows where he's held up at the moment, but hopefully he's okay. Somebody and posted he... that. I'll see if I can find it by the time. Where uh, he is, exactly right. Okay, yeah. Excellent stuff. Des is on the call. Des, you're very welcome there. We're talking a bit of Bomac. Uh, not really sure what's happening. Last time he was in Scotland, someone tried to rob him. One man who tried to get away with day like robbery was Liam Smith on Saturday evening, coming into the fight, shedding that £42, dead at the weight, rolling over on his ankle. He tried as best as he could. Des, he stood in there, tried to throw a few shots. But as I mentioned on the pod, sometimes whenever a guy is injured and we see it happening in real time, it kind of takes away the intrigue of the fight a little bit. Eubank, for his part, did exactly what he needed to do. Worked off the jab, got the uppercuts going, got the hooks going, got to the body, and he just beat up Smith as the fight went on. I don't know what you were thinking, Des, but it started to become uncomfortable viewing from about the fifth or sixth onwards for me. I think you're on mute there, Des. Let me see if I can... Ah, there you are, sir. Perfect. Can you hear me, mate? We can indeed. Absolutely. Go ahead. Just to go back a step, I think it's Strange Ways. That's the one up there in Manchester. Okay. Um, yes, that's exactly the one he's at there. And, and just to come back on something you said, Matty, if you're getting robbed in the UK, pulling out a gun don't help you. It, it makes matters a lot worse. Like You can't have guns in the UK. So he's, he's in trouble, Bomek. Um, regarding Smith and Eubank, Steve, um, I think it was just maybe Bomek was in the right place at the right time. And Eubank, in, in Eubank himself had gone back to simplicity as opposed to complexity. Mm. And it was just it was just get behind a jab, box to orders, very disciplined, and if in doubt, grab. And he did that for the first three rounds, and it took an awful lot of momentum out of Smith. And did he put him down in the fourth round, Steve? I think it was the fourth round, yeah. And I think at that point now, it was just it was um it was a matter of time, wasn't it? I think it was the best Eubank I've seen, the worst Smith I've seen. Um, and I just think the weight had got to Smith and Eubank just grew into the fight. And we saw two different trajectories. Smith was going down and Eubank was going up. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Des? 
about Eubanks' career overall. I kind of touched on it. I hadn't got it in my notes on Sunday, so it was a bit of an impromptu rant for me that he's kind of always seemed to be on the periphery of the the big fights going for the names rather than sort of getting himself in that title mix and, I don't know, maybe risking himself getting bumped off by a lesser opponent, possibly. I mean, he's fought the likes of Groves, obviously. He's fought Billy Joe Saunders. He's done very well for himself. What do you think about his career overall and the trajectory that he's taken? Well, I think after the fight on Saturday, he had an opportunity to make a statement and, and, and call people out. And he called out Kelbrook, Connor Ben and Gennady Golovkin. And I think that kind of sums up Chris Eubank's mindset and where he is and what he wants out of it. Don't get me wrong, all those three fights would be, would be arena f- sellers and, and maybe in Connor Ben's case, a stadium seller. But it's not the sort of fight that we expect uh, an up-and-coming, hungry fighter to, to want. But I don't think Eubank's ever been that guy. I think he's, he's a marketing dream. I think he's... Um, what did KRS one say? It's his marketing and promotion over talent. Mm-hmm. And I, I sometimes I get that, but he's got something. There's no doubt about that. But in terms of where his career is, I think he's a solid middle of the road. I think he's bounced between British level to underneath world level. And I think whenever it's got, whenever the kitchen's got hot, he's kind of backed out a little bit. But I, I think he knows the tools he's working with. And I think he's been a picker and a chooser. And I don't think he's ever dis- he's ever thought in his whole life, I'm going to go and swim in open waters. He's never done that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, Well, at no, least no, not yeah. since the Saunders fight. I, I, and I think that might have scared him off it a little bit. I was, I was, well, I, I was there when that happened, Matty. And I, I, was, I was sitting quite close. And Chris Eubank, I, I, I remember saying to a friend of mine, Eubanks out of his depth. And then all of a sudden a light went on and you saw him believing himself. It was, it reminded me of Steve Collins against um, Mike McCullum all those years ago. Mm-hmm. He didn't quite believe he could do it until he was in the fight and he, he knew how to get to his kid. So I think you're right. I don't think he really believed he, he could beat Saunders. And I think it's only after about six or seven rounds, he started to realize I can get to this kid. And funnily enough, Matty, I think he was a little bit similar to that on Saturday night. He, I'm not quite sure he really believed he could get to, to Smith until about four or five. And even then he was very cautious and he, he didn't he didn't shoot his bolt. He, he, he played the longer game. So I think you're, there's something in what you're saying. I don't think you, as much as he's articulate and he's bright and he's, he's made for box office, but I don't think he's one of these guys that's, I believe I'm the very best and I can beat anybody, regardless of what you might hear him say. That's a very interesting point, very interesting way of looking things. Uh, and I suppose it's borne out in his performances as well. As we move on, we've got El Chupacabra. Uh, the uh, translation of that, I am told, is the goat sucker. So I don't know whether that's a dig at me and my, uh, my, my goats there, El Chupacabra. You're very welcome if you want to unmute yourself and let us know who you are. It's not take aims again, is it? Probably jumping on here. I've become a disruptor. Oh, I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> You're as bad as you matter. As, uh, who's them fellas that Hamid used to give the links to and used to come on H Money and whoever the other fellow was? Wow, that's a blast from the past. Jeez, are they still around? I don't know. idea, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, no, no I, yeah, I went with El Chupacabra. Then I also did the Google search and saw Goat Sucker. I was like, ah, I should probably change this. But here I am. <laughs> El that was perfect. It was perfect. <laughs> I'm the Goat Sucker. 
uh, twice in one week, Ames. You're absolutely welcome back again. You did your seconds out uh, stream on uh, Monday evening as well. Didn't manage to get on to troll you in reverse on the chat, unfortunately. But uh, great job. Um, happy enough with that at the moment? Are they going okay? Is, is Mr. Flexen, he's not going to give you the boot or anything anytime soon? Oh, that's all good. Don't worry. We can park all that talk for another time. Let's uh, let's talk all the boxing fights. Oh, here we go, Ames. Getting stuck straight in. I like that kind of energy. Uh, Smith against uh, Eubank. He called out Golovkin. 18 months on the couch, as Porky would say. Uh, Kel Book got called out as well. And uh, Connor Ben's name has been linked. Which one of, the, out of those three would you like to see most? Which is the most realistic of those three opponents? Uh, of the three presented, uh, if you're pushing me for one of those three fights, uh, I don't know. Ben's a hard one to pick because, uh, you can, well, you scratch off Ben because Ben isn't currently licensed to fight in the UK. So let's scratch off Ben for a second. Kel Brook, I don't think he should return back to the ring. He probably does have a fight left in him, but do I want to see him back in the ring? No, not really. Golovkin, do I want to see Chris Eubank Jr. versus Golovkin, a fight that he passed up if you're on that side of the fence of the Seven whole years debate? ago. Yep. Several years ago, exactly. And with Golovkin, for me, my favourite fight over the past 10 years, watching his rise from from obscurity into the, the mainstream media, I wouldn't want to see him go out to in that form against... Like getting fighter. picked off almost by a That's lesser right. fighter who he would have beaten in his prime. Exactly, exactly. Okay. So okay. of those three fights, at a push of those two, I'd have to say Golovkin, but I don't really want to see it. And also, I think Golovkin's interest is having a final fight over in Kazakhstan. I don't really see Chris Eubank Jr. flying over to Kazakhstan to have that fight. So I think that kind of scratches that one off either. The, the only fight really that springs to mind for me for Eubank Jr. outside of a title run, which I don't think he's all that interested in, as Dez has kind of alluded to already, um, the, the fight that has narrative, the fight that I feel that he was very close to winning and has a claim to have, have having saying that he could have very closely won the fight or did win the fight is a rematch with uh, Billy Joe Saunders. He's looking to return to the ring at 175, I believe it is. And if he can get down to uh, a weight that suits, then I think those two should go to go uh, get back together for another fight. And that's uh, an interesting fight enough for, for the two for for boxing fans for to be box office and to be a money spinner. So that's really the fight that I'm looking and interested in for Chris Eubank Jr. What if Saunders Ames says, I'm 175, I can't get down any lower, and they say, okay, let's sort of make a bit of a catch weight here. We've seen Eubank be willing to move the goalposts and come down in weights especially. He's briefly flirted with higher weights, super middleweight in the past. Do you think some kind of a catch weight could be agreed. He could maybe bulk up looking like the Incredible Hulk to make that Saunders fight. I think he would maybe be open to something like that. He's shown in the past that he can be. I don't know. I, I, Saunders really is realistic prospects aren't any further than one fight at one, one uh, light heavy. So I don't think he's looking to campaign there. Can he get back down to Super Bowl? I definitely think so. I don't think there'll really be a need to do any sort of catch weight for that fight. Um, I think Chris Jr. would probably be happy enough to get there as well. So I think that fight kind of can go ahead. Uh, in traditional weight brackets. Lovely stuff. Let's have a look who's hanging around in the chat there. Michael Thompson is here. He said, if there's a time to win a belt at middleweight, then it's now. Janny Beck, the only good fighter at that weight. Janny Beck is fighting Gualtieri, who we know next to nothing about uh, in October. Uh, Matt Butters as well was saying that Boxrec has Eubank ranked at number two at middleweight now. So that's something, uh, Matt. Uh, he's obviously pretty highly ranked by the algorithms or the computers, the statistics or something there. It's a crazy ranking that they've... I don't know if anyone's actually looked at the box rec rankings. They've got Triple G at number one, 
they've got Eubank Jr. at number two and Liam Smith at number three. <laughs> so, okay. so the so the top t- so two of the top three are coming off of losses, and the other two uh, and the other guy is not a world title contender or really uh, has any world title at all. It's I, I do not understand where Boxrec is getting any of their rankings from. But I mean, if if you want any my uh, two cents on where Triple G and uh, Triple G on where a Eubank should go next, it. To be honest, it is the Triple G fight. I know he's past his best. I know. But if you're looking at a fight for Eubank to really, you know, making some money, which, you know, Eubank has said in the past that he's in it for the money. You know, he wouldn't have taken the Ben fight if it wasn't for the money. I think that the best fight that really gets him some standing is the Triple G fight. And, you know, if you can make that fight, if a fight can be made, then... I say, why not, you know, make him the number one of box rec, uh, according to those rankings. It's definitely the best option out, out of, you know, Kelbrook, Connor Ben, you know, no, no one wants to see those fights, especially not Connor Ben. So, yeah, if those are the three options on the table, I'll take Triple G any day. I wonder, Matt, to do with the box rec, uh, rankings, whether it's sort of what have you done in the past, like accumulated points. Mm. Liam Smith has been in with the likes of Canelo and that and fought at a, at a good level, whereas the likes of Gualtieri, apart from Esquivia Falco winning the title, has fought nobody. So it's maybe sort of weighed up from that. And I suppose and I suppose when you look at the likes of Alan Canuli, yes, he's a world titleist, but you know, who's he actually been beating to get up there? And you know, yes. I think you said I think you said on the pods on the on on Sunday Steve that you know he's had this weird, really weird run uh, after he's got the title really beating you know going life and death with Denzel Bentley and you know the the fight with uh Paul Butler you know it's just a, it's uh Danny yeah. Dignam yeah yeah exactly exactly it's just a it's been a strange one for Adam Clunuli even though I guess I think a lot of people's inklings is that he's maybe the best at middleweight or uh, you know well if 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 Charlo actually comes back into the ring again, which is a completely other story, uh, completely different story, but yeah, you know, it's the, the best at middleweight is maybe between Charlo and Alan Canuli, but you know, they have to get in the ring to actually prove that. Yep, in the sport, you got to get in the ring to prove things. Alan Haluli could be the best of the bunch, but we have yet to see until he fights the best names. Michael Thompson says might jump on. Just glad I've caught one for once. You are very welcome to jump on if you want, Michael. We're firing through these. No messing around. Going on to Matty. He's next on the panel. And a change of topic as well for you, Matty. We're going on to Usyk against Dubois. I know you've had your say uh, the night after it happened over low blowgate. Now that the dust has settled, what are you thinking about that particular fight, Matty, and where both guys move on? Uh, Daniel Dubois, obviously. Some people think he should be the unified champion now. It's maybe not as simple as that. Usyk, apart from the low blow, probably did what he wanted right up until the quote-unquote quit at the end of the fight. What are you thinking now, a couple of weeks on? I uh, I, I still think it was a 50-50 call for the ref, so it, that is what it is. Um, Dubois needs to build himself up, man. That dude needs some freaking confidence, man. Um, maybe that uh, that shot and drop in Usyk might give him a little bit of a, of a kick but but I think that he really needs to build himself up again because that uh, he just he had the chance to really pour it on and he and he didn't take it so um, he's gonna be regretting that I, I think he's gonna regret that the same way that Callum Johnson 
regrets not throwing it on better be of uh, after he uh, had him dropped and hurt. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe something, maybe a little bit over British level, maybe find, you know, former European champion kind of guy, see what he can get on there for Usyk. I want the Tyson Fury fight or the Wilder fight and, 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 and nothing, but, um, anything else is stupid. I, I don't care. Um, he, he's, he's an incredible fighter, um, but it'll be very interesting to see if, uh, the power of Wilder or the size of Fury tells, um, I tend to lean yes in both uh, both cases, but I would r- prefer to see it rather than just guess in my head. Matty, you say Dubois needs to uh, bulk himself up or build himself up. Are you suggesting that he needs to get on the o- over-the-counter supplements, or is this a confidence-boosting thing merely? Confidence, confidence. Yeah, nothing to do with uh, getting on, uh, you know, something that you give your dog or going to Mexico for beef or, you know, whatever might be rolling through his head. Uh, do it the natural way. Do it the natural way. Get a bit of intense beef from Mexico there. Uh, can Des the confidence of Dubois be enhanced? Indeed, we've seen him in the past when the going gets tough. Sometimes the heart's maybe not in it. Uh, Joyce jabbed the head off him, closed the eye. Usyk seemed like he was there, there for the taking's probably a little bit strong. But if Dubois was going to win a world title, let alone three world titles, that was the time to do it to throw caution to the wind and throw those bombs. But he steadily allowed himself physically and mentally to be eroded. Can that be changed, or is that just the kind of guy he is? No, I think that can be changed. I think I think people can learn from mistakes. I think people can develop. People can grow. I think I think with age comes a different approach. And I think he'll be better at 28 than what he was at 23. And he'll probably be better at 31 than he was at 28. Because experience does that to you. And there's no doubt about it. He'll look back on that night against Usyk. And he'll be kicking himself. He'll be he'll feel really let down himself. Because it was on the table for him. And it was his opportunity. I don't think, I don't think any version of Dubois beats any version of Usyk, by the way. Mm-hmm. But I think it was an opportunity. And sometimes... I think you're better off going out meaning it rather than going out one foot in, one foot out. And I think Daniel Dubois treated Saturday night by having one foot in and one foot out. And that's not how you beat a brilliant generational talent. I think experience is key, exactly what you said there, Des, because experience in this case can be a feeling. You've never been cut before. All of a sudden, the blood's pissing down the side of your face. The next time that happens, you remember the way you dealt with that. You remember that feeling, what happened in that situation. It's not alien to you. It's not new to you. So hopefully, Dubois can roll on these experiences, even if it takes another loss, a fourth loss, a fifth loss. We've seen in the heavyweight division in the past. He's a relative baby. He's 25 years of age. Guys are going on to 35, 40 at least. He can definitely keep going for another 10 years and build that experience. He might have another couple of losses. He might have to go through hell. But eventually, I think you're right, Des. I think that experience will carry it, maybe not through to winning a world title, but to be the best version of himself that he possibly can in the ring. Well, you you know yourself, Steve, two of the biggest components in promoting a kid and getting a kid through a career is matchmaking and timing. Um, If you get that bit right, You've got a talent on your hands and you've got size on your hands and you've got someone who's been around the block a bit. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. No, no doubt about it. Dubois can win a world title. They've got to pick them right and they've got to get the timing right. They've got to get the venue and location right. Um, interesting enough with Dubois, I think his best performances in his whole career have been him losing. I think mm-hmm. him against Joe Joyce was the best version of Dubois I've ever seen. I had that fight neck and neck. And it's just it's just sliding door moments. Um, and we, we look, 
I said this, I said this to the boys a couple of weeks ago. A, a, a Grand Slam tennis champion can walk out into an arena, say his hamstring's gone, and just tell everyone, I'm not performing. Footballers, we've seen them have bad days and tell the bench, get me off. Boxers can't do that. Mm-hmm. You are in it both feet. And unfortunately, Dubois got to get that side of his personality right. And I know he's only young and he, he comes across as um, quite timid and quite sheltered. And I think there's possibly an overbearing father who's done an awful lot for him and, and it's created this sort of persona in Daniel. But he has been around all the London boxing clubs. He has been around the world as an amateur. Um, he has done an awful lot in the gyms. He has become a British champion. The Joe Joyce experience would have been invaluable for him. And if he can take, if he can put all that together with the Usyk experience, I don't see any reason why Daniel Dubois can't have a really good five or six years. Absolutely. I completely agree with that, Ames. Um, If you're going to lose a fight on a big stage, at least give a good account of yourself. Or if you can't do that, and I'm not saying Dubois didn't, he gave a very good account of himself. If you can't do that, at least come out with a controversial point. As Des mentioned there, Ames, a sliding doors moment where you got Frank Warren can go and say, oh, if it wasn't Frank Warren's head, we could do this, to sort of build off that momentum. We've seen some of the great rematches in boxing history, even the likes of George Groves against Froch, or you come out with a reason, an excuse to go again, an excuse to get you on to that next level. And I think the fact that he had that fifth round didn't work out for him in the past. He'll be all the better for that experience, and they'll be all the better to build that narrative off the back of that as well. The uncrowned, unified heavyweight champion of the world, etc. He came out with that moment, thankfully, and that is at least something to build on. Yeah, it just it depends really how much Dubois actually believes in what He's saying, really, does he believe he was cheated at the moment? Is it is he being told to kind of say that and feel that? And behind the scenes with, with everything, when the doors are closed, does he truly believe that? Dubois will have his own kind of feelings and convictions about his performance. And, you know, I guess we'll never truly know whether Dubois does feel that way or not. It's just kind of what we're fed there. But you hope he kind of does take something from it. And he should do. He definitely should do. I thought watching the fight that I saw, an improved version of, of of Daniel in the ring against Alexander Usyk. You you can really get no higher bar, maybe other than Tyson Fury. Um, so I thought he he acquitted himself as well as he could do under those circumstances. Under those circumstances of a young fighter who has, we talked about experience being a feeling, but experience is more importantly in the heavyweight division is fights, and there are big uh, experience gaps in his CV so far. There's no real bridging fight or bridging win that he's had to get to that level at all. And that's what Daniel needs now. He needs those one or two bridging fights before he does go in again uh, for a, a world title shot or a t- uh, or a fight of any real significance or meaning. He needs a fight against the likes of a Joe Parker who's been there and won a world title, still has something to offer. He needs a fight against someone like, I know people don't want to see Takam in the ring, but Takam just got a win against Yoker and is still going. And he's someone who gave Joe Joyce fits as well in his fight um, and was stopped early in, in that fight as well too. So Takam, someone who will bring it to Dubois and get him under heavy level like Lorena did, just a, a proper heavyweight Takam. is. So he needs those type of fights to have that extra bit of adversity again, come through it, grab that bit of confidence and then go in against someone who, when those titles disperse and we know heavyweight division really, I think... The crop, there's there's a bit more depth of talent than there was a few years back. But after Fury and Usyk depart, 
there's definitely definite opportunity for Danny Debar to pick up a world title. It might take more than one, uh, more than another opportunity to get there, but definitely if if if, if other fighters, if 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 someone like a Ruiz, who's considered this generation's Buster Douglas, can win a world title, then you you have the feeling that Debar can too. So I mean, time will only tell with that, but also there's got to be a lot of right matchmaking to get Dubois to that point. Otherwise, bad bad losses for Daniel are what you want to look out for, what you want to avoid, because that will damage him completely. And then that's the fight. I think I think something that's not been picked up, and I'm one of these people that didn't pick up, uh, and I think it's lost in translation a little bit. I think Usyk might, might have said that Daniel told him that he was going to retire or something along those lines. I need to check mm-hmm. that back again. But if Daniel's thinking that after the fight, then that's a problem as well if he's got that in his mind. I know the heat at the moment and whatever it is, and, uh, you know, he might just have that feeling right there and then. But if that's something that's flashing into his mind, then that's got to be ironed out as well. He's got to understand. He literally has all the capabilities to win a world title. Just managing those moments better will get him to to wear that crown. Uh, I'm just sticking on a heavyweight theme. You mentioned uh, bridges there. You can maybe bridge us over into the sort of wider heavyweight discussion. Usyk marches on. We want to see him fight Fury. There's talk of Fury Joshua again now. Joshua Wilder's being floated. You were speaking to the veteran boxing journalist Thomas Hauser recently. Uh, what kind of takeaways did you get from talking to Thomas? I think it was a good half an hour, a very good discussion as usual. What, what, what? Anything you can pick out for us that he that he said that was of interest to the listeners? Yeah, specifically on about his... I just wanted to explore his feelings on anti-Joshua and his direction in terms of his fight future. And Hauser was of a, a controversial opinion which struck at a time against the likes of Eddie Hearn and others in the industry that anti-Joshua should retire in the midst of having made money on money on money and having created somewhat of a legacy. There's no real reason for him to continue in Hauser's words, even though the likes of Fury and Wilder fights are in the offing, potentially, you know, those fights have never got over the line, uh, but potentially those fights in the offing, Hauser was saying he doesn't need those, the risk factor of risk and reward weighed heavily towards the the negative, so it was his feeling that Joshua should wave goodbye to the sport, and I, I, I understand that to a degree, and Hauser's uh, detracting from Hauser's argument is that Essentially, he doesn't, and I don't think anyone can really kind of point the finger at Joshua right now to say this guy's maybe struggling with signs of CT, which is a, a big problem for what fighters when they do retire, especially the heavyweight division where you're taking the heaviest licks you can receive in the sport uh, in the most pressurized moments. Uh, I don't think Joshua displays something of that. If people want to maybe loosely, tenuously point the finger at him being gun shy as a factor of that, then. I don't know, maybe if you want to make that argument, but I don't certainly see that. But it was good to kind of explore Hauser's feeling, and I think there is some merit to it. But the, the kind of merit kind of uh, goes away if the fights do happen and AJ comes up as, as the winner of, of one or two of those fights. But I do understand where he's coming from, and I'm sure that's certain, certain to rattle a few cages, um, as Hauser has done in the past and will continue to do. He's a, he's a brilliant writer and journalist. Um the other point uh, on on what um, I spoke with Hauser was about the the, pro- the reoccurring problem with PEDs in the sport, which seems we're on a horrendous run with yeah. them or a, a, a good run of catching them, I guess, if you want to look at it that way. And Hauser kind of, I just, I just, it's you always feel kind of like, or at least I feel it's like a wasted breath when it comes to 
asking these questions of people. Like when another test uh, comes back positive, he's like, well, what can we do about the sport? And she feels like, you know, what can we do? I'm asking the question and nothing's going to happen. And then roll on four weeks later and I'm going to ask it again. You know, there's no real change. And Hauser just kind of said, look, there is there is a there is a set answer. There is. It's it's VADA. You just implement, implement VADA every test you can, every in every opportunity you can where you have the resource to do so. He understands that, look, you can't do it for every fight. The 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 amount of resource it would take would would obviously bankrupt a, a promotion to do that. But you have to do it for when the big fights occur. And I, I completely agree with uh, Hauser's point. Um, and he kind of as, as well shut down the use of drug-free sport when it appears to be on the surface that you can manipulate drug-free sport to your your kind of benefit, I guess, um, from what Hauser was saying, that that being not the answer. So, I mean, that's that's always going to be an on, uh, ongoing grumbling debate, especially again in the in the in the wake of costs. I think for me, really, the it's a step in on a higher level that's going to have to happen to change really the use or supposed use of drugs in the sport but it's a recurring problem nonetheless and then we also talked as well about the potential or lack of potential in houses feeling about a appeal from frank warren and dubois team which is what they have to do and whether he felt that dubois did have does or didn't have the heart which is another question about dubois which is carrying on around him and I, I, for one, I know, as I've said before, and Andy's kind of been the one who's more brutal than I am to point the finger at a fighter and say, you quit. I, I would never do that. I can't do that because I don't I don't think it's quite fair. And it's, especially as well when, for me, a fighter who sustains an injury in the second and then finishes up in the 10th or 11th or what it was, whatever it was, so he continued for that many rounds until that point. That, for me, isn't a quitter, I guess. So, uh, yeah. Well, and he got that... up, man. I mean, he got up. Yeah, I mean, he got up against Lorena as well, yeah, uh, too. So, yeah, those are kind of the topics we've discussed. I hope, hopefully, we'll be discussing uh, more future topics with Hauser. It felt like uh, the first of many. So, it was a real good experience. Oh, brilliant stuff. Uh, long mate, continue, Ames. Uh, Michael Thompson says, feel like it was a yard-like step up for DDD. Ames is right about there being no middle ground opponent so far. I think Matt Ames made a good point there. Sometimes we underestimate just how quickly things happen. And uh, we can, I suppose, look at this in our own lives as well. The speed of things, and you've got to make a split decision. I'm talking about Dubois maybe quitting, quote-unquote. I'm talking about the referee, Louis Pabon. I know he had time to think about it afterwards with the low blow and that. But sometimes the speed of these actions, and then you make a decision, and you decide you don't want to carry on, or you decide you're going to do X, Y, and Z, or as a referee or an official, you decide this. And then afterwards, when the dust settles, or you look at a replay, or you think half an hour later, and the adrenaline stops pumping, and your head's a bit clearer, and you think, shit, I shouldn't have done X, Y, and Z. Maybe in hindsight, I would have done this. Do you think we may be a bit too harsh on people who have to make absolutely split-second decisions for the whole world to see? Maybe, but, I mean, we... At the end of the day, that's their job, isn't it, to make split-second decisions? If you're in, if you're a professional boxer, you're making split-second decisions for up to twelve rounds, you know, three minute, three twelve-minute rounds, uh, and every single second of that round is full of split-second decisions. So, though I take the point, I, I, I really think that it really shows your character 
what you do with those split second decisions. You know, do you decide to carry on when the going gets tough? Do you decide to get up when you're Yes, you, know, you think that sorry then do you think that might be more to do with your innate character or your toughness then that you would decide to carry on as rather not carry on as your sort of warrior mentality? Yeah, exactly. Okay. You know, the uh you know, when you know Dan, Dan, Daniel uh, got dropped in the ninth round and just decided to sit on his knee and not get up. He got up at I think Actually, I think he got up about 9.5 seconds or something, <laughs> which was obviously way too late by that point to actually do anything with the ref. It's one of those little quiet quitting sort of things. And you say, oh, I got up. But actually, no, you didn't get up. You really just left it way too late. Um, and I think it, it does show uh, your innate character, you know. And look, I, I agree with everything that was said before, especially with, with what Des said about experience being the learning factor in this. And I, I do agree. I think experience will change what kind of fighter he is going forward. Maybe he will look back on that and think, actually, I need to train to be more of a dog. I need to train to really have that heart. But at the same time, you can't change what you are on the inside. And if his personality on the inside is the sort of guy that when the going gets really, really tough and I have to get up when I'm, you know, maybe losing seven, eight rounds to pull out a finish. If I just stay down, you know, I can, I can finish it now and I don't have to take any more punishment. But if that sort of mentality, is, I don't think it's something you can really learn. I think it's something that is innate and maybe develops over time. Um, that that's at least the response what, what I think of when it comes to Dubois with Pabon it's slightly different um I think refs can be slightly more excused for split second decisions especially when it's a borderline shot I, I we've discussed this so many so much now so I'm only going to talk briefly on it but it was a borderline shot to the body in that fifth round um there's an argument for it being called low there's an argument for it being called uh, uh, legal in the in the immediate aftermath of that I saw pretty much equal amounts from both sides mm. now the dust has settled I think I'm starting to see more and more people think actually that was a low blow and yes. you know I've seen I've seen more and more people come out and, and actually say actually that was low it's an obvious low but yeah. in the moment you know we had uh, and Carl Frampton didn't help this at all. In the moment, Carl Frampton came out and said, "Oh, Daniel Dubois should be world champion now," and which I, <laughs> which didn't help at all in muddy, <laughs> you know, unmuddy in the waters. But with such a controversy coming out of it, I think you can't criticize the ref in making that split second decision. What you can criticize the ref on, and then going to Matty's point about uh, on the pod last week about the uh, or the week before, I should say about the long uh, a lot long rest what you can criticize them for is giving excessive amounts of time to recover which is what Pabon did with Usyk really you know you had Usyk coming up and saying oh I'm ready to go I'm ready to go and Pabon saying no no it's all right take a sit down you know have a have a nice relax whilst you know Dubar is in the other corner thinking what the fuck's going on here why did you know? Pabon do that do you think I've seen a lot of people come out again. I've seen a lot of people in the aftermath come out and say, oh, Pabon is Usyk's pet referee. But I don't actually remember Pabon doing a whole lot of Usyk's fights in the past. I, I don't know if there's any bias there or, you know, not not the sort of 
similarity we had with Floyd and uh, Kenny Bayliss, where he, you know, Floyd would take him all over the place. But so I, I don't know if it's ref bias. I don't know enough about Pabon to know if it's ref bias. It's hard to remember who refereed what, I think, unless the obvious <laughs> there's the obvious standout ones, isn't there? Like you mentioned, like Richard Steele and blah blah blah. But as for Pabon refereeing Usyk fights, unless I went and looked on box right now, I couldn't tell you if, if you ref one. If you remember who the referee is, the referee fucked up somewhere. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We only remember the referees when there's something controversial going on, don't we? Which uh, is why I remember Pabon's name now. Um, I don't really know the answer to that question, Steve. I know that's fantastic analysis, as always. Um, I, I, I have a feeling there was probably a slight little bit of, this was a low blow. Uh, this guy is the unified champion of the world. We don't. I don't want there to be any sort of, you know, I don't want there to be any calls after the fight saying, oh, you let this, you let Dubois win the world championship off of a low blow, basically. So maybe there was a little bit of that in the back of his mind. Mm. Maybe there was a little bit of, shit, Usyk might actually be hurt here. This is a pretty bad low blow. We, I'm going to have to give him a little bit of time to make sure he recovers. So I don't know. Maybe it's a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Uh, Matty, uh, touching on what Ames was saying and then Matt's discussion there about sort of innate characteristics and that, we're often saying in this sport... We want people to get out on the top, you know, with their faculties intact, when they've made enough money and when they retire, we respect that. You know, we don't want to see anybody sort of chattering away late with CTE later on in their career. Yet, when it, I remember when Ryan Bennett retired, everyone was surprised. Well, maybe not that much because he had a bit of a back injury, but he was, you know, he'd unified the titles, lost the Denaire. He'd come back in a comeback fight and we thought, here we go, he's going to have another run. And then he suddenly retired. That was a bit surprising. The likes of AJ now, I know Joseph Parker, I think he struggles for motivation because he's just made so much money. And I would be like that too. If I had like £10 million in the bank or something, I would be a bit averse to go in and get my head punched in. The point is, if Joshua now, as Hauser suggests, walked away with £150 million, £200 million, whatever he's worth, realistically on the front of it, I could say, well, fair play. He's got his money. His faculties are just about intact, we think. He walks away, but instead we're raging. What the fuck are you doing? He hasn't fought Fury. He hasn't fought Wilder. He's walking away with all these big fights that you owe us on the table. Whereas really, you know, some we should maybe be applauding him for walking away. So he can't do right for doing wrong, really. What do you think about that one? Well, I mean, I think, you know, it's up to each fighter. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, fair for us to say that they're not chasing greatness. And, and that's a perfectly fine position to have um but it, they don't have to chase greatness they might be chasing stability they might have had an exit number the they just might have they wanted comfort you know uh, whatever it might be everyone has you know something that they want to get out of whatever they're doing and some people just want to go clock in and, and go to work and come home and call it a day and uh when it's done you know that's what it is and other people want to be the absolute best at whatever it is they're doing and they will put in the extra hours and they will will work harder than you and they will uh, get back up again if they fall and and keep chasing it and uh you know if any of these guys don't feel like like chasing that that's fine you know but uh, thank god for people who are so crazy as Deontay Wilder who can't accept that they've lost and are just willing to to keep on going because they're always going to be exciting because they want something more out of it than than most guys that they're going to face. 
Des, you mentioned earlier about Dubois. Obviously, he's, able, he's young enough to gain that experience and rebuild. You mentioned in the chat there again, a very good case study for redeveloping and rebuilding is O'Hara Davis. There's sometimes anomalies in people's careers. I can't think of anybody offhand now, but sometimes we look at guys' careers and a fella who might have gone in with the very best, the hardest hitters in his division and and got through win or lose. But earlier on his career, he might have got stopped by a journeyman or something. And we think, how did that happen? That's just like a, a complete anomaly. It shows guys can change, they can improve, they can mature, they can develop. We can't necessarily just write people off. If it happens three, four, five, six, seven times, it becomes a bit of a pattern. But I love that O'Hara Davis comparison. He's on the verge of a fight with Wally Romero now. Whenever he did the two noses thing in Scotland against Josh Taylor and people accused him of swallowing it, it was hard to see him ascend to a position like this. I think Steve as well. You've got to, you've got to be very empathetic of O'Hara's situation. Mm-hmm. He he was called a quitter. He'd lost a big fight. Was it on terrestrial TV that one? It was on Channel Five. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was laughed at and ridiculed for the way he lost it. And then it wasn't so long after that he was made homeless. You know, he, his trainer had, had asked him to leave the gym. His promoter had severed ties with him. I think the network he boxed on had backdoored him. Now, that's really tough for anyone to deal with. I mean, we're in a society where we offer support for us wherever we can. But for that kid there, at that moment in time, he would have had a very dark few months. Mm-hmm. And I know he jumped from a few trainers and I know he didn't cover himself in a lot of glory the way he, he was hopping from trainer to trainer. And there was a couple of skirmishes outside your call and, and he went through the... Uh, that tournament, the MTK tournament. But I think if you spoke to O'Hara now on the quiet and said, how do you feel over the last two or three years? I think he'd say, do you know what? I wouldn't change a single thing because it's made me a stronger person, a more independent person. It's wised me up. And now I'm in a much better place than I've ever been. I'm not anyone's dancing pet anymore. I'm not being given a script and told to go and say this and say that. And the defeat to Taylor... And did he, he got beat by Catterall as well, didn't he? Yes, he did, yes. Yeah, all these things, if you've got the mentality and if, you, if, you, if, you, if you're prepared to say, this is what I do, all it can do is make you a better fighter, but more importantly, a better person. And the two are in that's linked. Good fighters are normally good people. And if, if, if you can look at O'Hara Davis as a case study, I think Daniel Dubois can come the same route. He, I thought he boxed brilliantly against Joe Joyce. I think he'd have learned so much at the whole experience with Alexander Rusik, the training camp, going out there, the fight week, the, the nine rounds he did with one of the best generational talents we've got. And then if he goes on, I think definitely Daniel Dubois can take an awful lot of good and come back again. But I know, I know, I know it's a lot to ask and we're in a very, very tough sport. But if Daniel Dubois can just ride this wave, I think he'll be a better man for it. And Des, just to close off your O'Hara Davis loop as well, it's been a bit real hero's journey for him. Character development, as you said, as a man, as much as a fighter. And I always come back to the example as a fighter, I'm sure you remember as well, Anthony Small, who was very abrasive, very brash, talented guy. Um, Came up against Bradley Price, got humbled, got stopped. His heart was never seemed to be in it after that. And then eventually, I'm pretty sure he lost to Sam Webb for the British title about 10, more than 10 years ago now. And then he never boxed again. And those shows the different kind of routes and exemplifies even more O'Hara Davis's development along that kind of hero's journey. That's a great point. And, And like you say, sometimes 
like I, I wasn't happy with the way Andy Ruiz performed after he beat Anthony Joshua. Mm-hmm. But I've been really impressed with the way, for example, I'm trying to think of one now. Someone who's I, I remember Michael Watson getting beat by James Cook. And I and I and I distinctly remember a conversation happening where he said, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna think about it. I'm just gonna move on. And he did. And he went and beat mm-hmm. Nigel Ben. You know, you know, like I say, it's a revolving door, this sport. And it's it's about how you look what's that what's that Kipling phrase where you know failure and def, defeat and uh, success and you've got to see them for what they are and I think Dubois like O'Hara like Michael Watson all those years ago like Dennis Andrews all those years ago yeah. like like you know like um Duran when he got iced by Tommy Jones. we could talk we give hundred examples of this you've got to as a boxer, I think you've got to accept that I'm going to have some really, really dark days. But if I can come through it, if I can ride that wave, I will be will be a better man for it. And having good people around you as well helps. <laughs> Sergio, Sergio Martinez, dude. You talk about a guy who he suffered a loss early. He toiled in obscurity throughout his career. And then he ended up headlining a pay-per-view uh, against Chavez and uh, in a you know pulling out that victory in the end. That was that was a culmination of a lot there. Like and and that made him who he is. He's a he's an incredible person. Somehow still competing today. Yes, why may? Yep, shout out to Sergio Martinez. He's still going at the moment. He might get another title shot. Matt Butters isn't going anymore, but we thank him for his contribution. We're going to close up this section. Then we're going to talk a bit of Kiko, and then we're going to shut it off for the evening. You are listening to The Nutters Call. This is the chance for the Boxing Nutters Messenger Group, our patrons and contributors to have their say. If you want to join them, go over to patreon.com forward slash boxing asylum or hit me a message. You can join Ames, you can join Des, Matty, me, Steve, Matt Butters, and all the other boys. Joe Kennedy usually jumps on, Danny Young as well. Sometimes we have Damo and Zekonomics jumping on the call, and Justin as well, the North Carolina assassin. Uh, you can have your say on boxing and call into a future Nutters One show. of two Americans who owns a Robert Hellenius shirt. Oh my God, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just assume Gabe has one. I just oh, I'm sure he does. It's stretching as we speak. Shout out to Gabe. We love you. You won't be listening, but we love you anyway. Come back to the pod if you want to. Before we go on to Kiko Ames, just... Uh, Talking about the heavyweights again, Andy Ruiz was going to fight Deontay Wilder. This has been dragging on for ages. Apparently, Ruiz priced himself out. Uh, Wilder said he wanted $20 million. Ruiz said, no, it was only $10 million. We know where, how Uncle Al is going to come up with this. Uh, we, we were hoping that Fury was going to fight Joshua. We expected that fight might happen at least. Then it was going to be Joshua Wilder. Eddie Hearn said it's a couple of weeks away from happening. Now they're going back to Fury Wilder again. Is it Fury? I, I'm losing track, Ames, to be honest with you. Are these are these fights actually going to happen? Is AJ and, jo- and Deontay Wilder going to face each other in the ring? Are they going to be staring across on a pay-per-view? Is it going to happen, Ames? Yeah, I'm absolutely lost in the source in the in the time. Losing myself here, dude, to be honest. <laughs> that's exactly it. That's right. And I feel like that's the position of a lot of boxing fans who have following Eddie Hearn's kind of success, Eddie Hearn kind of like rode the crest of the wave of Frotch grows into anti Joshua's rise to prominence. And then that kind of led to the point where there's only one fight really out there for Joshua and Fury was outside of the ring and dealing with whatever he was dealing with outside of the ring. There was one fight in the minds of the conscious of boxing fans, and that was anti Joshua versus Jonathan Wilder. And I believe like from that point where in the initial stage where the fight wasn't didn't get made, I think Eddie lost quite a lot of interest 
from the boxing public who started to turn against him, as well as then boxing public in that fight too, or the belief that that, that fight would ever get made. And ever since that point, it's been multiple junctures of the fight is close. We're sending out offers. We're 80%, 90%, 95%, 99.9%. Then there's an arbitration, which if you know a little bit about the legal sphere and some of the cases in boxing, really you would know that the fight would, the, the arbitration case would have always gone and been awarded towards until Wilder in that rematch for Fury. And there, were, there wasn't really a, a claim to, to be making that fight, or at least say these legal teams should have probably known that anyway, if they were uh, looking to make a deal on that basis. Uh, but yeah, and and since then, still those those those, those talks or apparent talks have been made and the offers have been sent and this, that and the other. The truth of the matter is, is with, with at least for myself anyway, far beyond the point of like... Um, you know, I'll I'll, I'll 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 switch on when they're poke, yeah, wake me up when they're walking to the ring. <laughs> that's that's kind of the that's kind of the usual. Literally, because it probably be about three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, that's kind of the point where boxing fans get to. But now it's kind of just point of like, yeah, I don't, I'm I'm very hesitant to believe that the fight will actually ever get made, and uh, that's kind of a, a rough position to be in because that's one of the. Uh, jewels in the crowns of uh, jewels in the crown of boxing fights to be made, and we've had um, some recently this year. Oh, we had two of them this year in Garcia and Davis, and then um, Spence and Crawford. So the re- why why we haven't been able to get that fight over, you know, when other fights have been made is a real real kind of shame. And there's only you you can't point you can't point the finger really for me at either Josh or either Fury. I believe both fighters want to want to. Uh, make that fight, especially uh, for Joshua, who's who's thrown himself in against Usyk. He could have avoided fights with Usyk. So, why would he avoid a fight with Fury and want to fight Usyk? I think. Well, you, 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 you know, the thing is, with you throw Wilder in there, and you have three guys with three different promoters, so there there's some reasons abound, right? The one that doesn't make sense that there's cause for bitching is Fury and Usyk. They're involved both with top rank. That should have been much easier to do than any of these. The rest of them, yeah, promotional bullshit, whatever. Um, but that one should stick in our craw because that should have been made. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm in complete agreement. We shouldn't be talking about Fury versus Ngannou or Usyk versus Hergovic or indeed Usyk versus Dubois. We should be talking about Fury versus Usyk. But it's it's... It's this at this point it's still and Fury Usyk is a bit of a fresher fight. It's also old spiel, and it's frustrating to to be speaking about it. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm I still hold out hope. I just don't think it will be this year. I'm I presume it will be early next year. But really, do I have a clue? No, not at all. And we're we're boxing fans are again at the whim of of little bits of news from promoters and a little bits of hope from promoters that the fight does get over the line. Yeah, Michael Thompson says, a bit depressing that when a rumoured heavyweight tournament in Saudi was talked about, we were all, rightly, cynical rather than excited. Uh, Matty, just uh, following on from what you were saying there about making the fight, it does seem bizarre considering the fact that Tyson Fury over on the Bob Arum ESPN side managed to make a fight not once, not twice, but three times with Deontay Wilder, PBC, Al Heyman. Usyk always comes across as one of the most easiest guys to deal with. He's travelled on the road relentlessly into people's backyards. They all say how easy he is to sign contracts. It, it you know, it, putting those factors into play, it seems weird that these are the two that we're struggling to get together. Most of all, Matty. 
Yeah, it's it's pretty ridiculous at the end of the day. Um, the one that stands out, probably, if you look at it at the end of the day, is, is Eddie. You know, none of these fights seem to be happening when Mr. Hearn is involved. Um, for whatever reason, Mr. Heyman, Mr. Aram can take a swing on these. But uh, but Eddie, uh, just uh, can't seem to make them big fights, Steve. It's, uh, you know, you hate to say that, uh, that it's him, but uh, if there's a constant in all of this, well, I, I think that's it, isn't it? Such a hater, Matty. Yeah, well, they'll be getting 25 bus, bucks less from me here soon. 25 bucks less for Matty. Uh, Des, do you want to say anything about the situation before we close out the show for this evening? Go ahead, sir. No, I'm, I'm, I was just nodding my head to what Matty said. I mean, I don't recall Matchroom in the last 15 years making a one versus two in any division. I know Wilder and um, AJ's not 1v2, but... They're in that four group. They're in that group of four, aren't they? And it would be a brilliant fight for the heavyweight division. But Matty's right. They've not got good form for making the top two in any division box off. Go on, Eddie. You need to pull your finger out and make these big fights. That's the overwhelming uh, message that we're sending out there tonight. Before we close up the Nutters chat for this Wednesday evening on the 6th of September, we had our say on this before. Matty, but I'll start off with you. I want to give Kiko Martinez a bit of love. We spoke about him on the pod uh, the ultimate road warrior, a man not afraid to go into backyards and upset people, uh, bang people out. Uh, I suppose the let's let's flip it on its head here, Matty. We assume Kiko is retired, but after this week's pod with the Firat Arslan <laughs> debacle, is, is anybody really retired? Are we going to see Kiko appearing on a Spanish poster sometime soon? Uh, it's just a matter of them waving that Saudi money in front of them, right? Uh, like, uh, who who can Kiko fight that they want to have over there? That's that's the question at hand. Um, so you know, don't uh, don't change your phone number quite yet, Kiko, because uh, you might have another six or seven figure payday ahead of you. Just stick it out, buddy. Uh, you know, uh, I I still thought you had two more good ones in you. Thirty-seven years of age, Des. I'm sure you've been watching the uh, career of Kiko along with us all. He's uh, a big power puncher, big personality, really nice guy. He's been a real benefit, I'd say, to the scene, especially the UK boxing scene over the years. We've seen him over here as much as we've seen him anywhere else, upsetting people, knocking people out, often when he wasn't expected to. Yeah, uh, Kiko goes back a long way with me. Um, I think have I seen him at your call, Steve? Quite possibly, I'm not sure to be honest. He's fought in a lot of small halls. Not sure if he's fought in your call. I see, I see Sergio Martinez in your call, but I, I remember, I remember him. I remember uh, Bernard Dunn's people caught a cold with Kiko, yeah. And I remember him boxing Jason Booth. And the biggest compliment you can pay Kiko is, and, and perhaps uh, Dominic spoke about this with Cole Frampton. The, the 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 clever people in boxing used to get Kiko back. So I think he fought an awful lot of our lot twice. I think he fought Rendell Munro twice. Yes. And he fought Warrington twice. And he fought Frampton twice. And I, and I remember always thinking uh, Scott Quigg never got his money's worth out of Kiko by doing him so quick. He should have he should have got about, you know, eight or nine rounds out of him and tried to get him back. Sold like, the rematch. <laughs> yeah, because there was so much to be learned from Kiko. He was a terrific fighter and... Um, he, he reminds me a bit like David Avenisian. We've adopted him, haven't we? We've taken him into our hearts like an adopted Brit. Um, I was checking his record there, actually, Des. He didn't fight at the York Hall. You mentioned Sergio Martinez, though. I'm assuming that was the Richard the Secret Williams back in the yeah. IBO days. Richard Williams, yeah, brilliant fighter, yeah. Williams, he, in hindsight, gave uh, Martinez as tough a fight as anybody up to that point. He got beat at the end, didn't he, uh, Williams? 
in that yeah, one. Yeah, he, he fought him yeah. twice, didn't he? I think didn't he fight right. him in Belfast on what on in, in the first fight? Like, I think. Did didn't Martinez come in on one of them on short notice and then they had a rematch? Possibly, right. I can't remember. I think the, the one of the fights was in Belfast and the other one was in the York Hall. I think Mar- Williams dropped him at least once because he was a bit vulnerable, wasn't he, Martinez, with his style? Was it Mal- and the, was it a Maloney promotion? I think it would have been a Maloney promotion. Yeah, yeah. yeah they were good old days. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to Frank Maloney. Don't know what happened to him. Um, on to you, Ames. <laughs> finally, just closing up <laughs> matters on Kiko Martinez. Have you ever had the pleasure? I've spoken to Kiko quite a few times, as I said before. Can't speak a word of English, but uh, he's even shorter than me, which is saying somebody is a lovely little fella. Yeah, I think I have. I believe my time at Boxing Social, I interviewed him ahead of oh, what fight was it? It might have been, it might might be one of the Warrington fights. Maybe it's, it was a, mm-hmm. must be in the recent years. Uh, let me have a think. It might be Galahad or no, I think it was Warrington. Yeah, it's, it's, it's most recent fight with Warrington. I think it's a bit of a shame for Kiko to have bowed out in Japan of all places after making you know the biggest splash outside of his native country, being in the UK. It would have been great to see him, you know, have that curtain closer in in the UK. Uh, a front in front of fans who really appreciate um, him as a fighter. You know, I feel like there was still probably a bit of life in you know the featherweight division where he could have had a fight with like say Nick Ball or Nat Collins or something along those lines. Where I, I think know... as well, I am sorry to interrupt you. That I, I yeah. was looking at his record and I was thinking to myself, after the Jordan Gill win, that would have been a perfect way. But then of course he's European champion. Then he's on the verge of world. He's still got a bit of currency about his name. He can still get that payday at world level, which he did mm. with Abe. And then he lost. And then he thought, okay, I think I'm I'm done. Rather than going on this yo-yo yet again. Yeah, no, I I understand that as well. But but I just think like, you know, it would have been nice to see him have that final bow over in the UK um, yeah. to some degree and. You know, get that little bit of when when fighters have had that little bit of a retirement from the fight. Maybe Kiko could have been thrown a bit of a bone by a promoter here for for some fight. So, yeah, great to see Kiko has been a, a brilliant servant to the sport, and you know, bow with with at least you know the UK fans can remember his 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 win over Jordan Gill and other such fights where he's put in just tremendous performances. That that Galahad fight. Uh, or the the way the Galahad fight ended when he was looking on the end of a uh, end, end of a referee stepping in and and pulling that out of the fire was a a, a brilliant moment which will live on along with other moments of his fight. So yeah, a, a brilliant warrior who goes into retirement now. Best yeah. Spanish fighter of all time, I think so. I think that's fair to say. It was just a fantastic finisher as well, Matty, just to close with you. It was the finishing instincts that the the, the Dunn fight showed that the Gill fight showed that. If you're in trouble uh, at the hands of Kiko, more often than not, he finished you off. And that's testament to the quality, I think, of the guys, Mate, that came back and beat him after being up against him. Oh, for sure. And I, I think it comes down to it when you kind of look at it, you know, just uh, going backwards. I think Martinez is probably one of the more underrated punchers of his generation. Mm-hmm. Oh, he so. could bang. He could bang, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. La Sensation. He has gone, but we will never forget him. Uh, Dez, anything you want to say before we close out there? I was just looking at Kiko's box, Rick. He's got an Armenian on his record as well, Steve. An Armenian on his record? Oh, is that yeah. Marty Rosian? Yes, he has. Yeah, I've just spotted him, yeah. I was at that fight. That was in Dublin in, oh gosh, was it 2010? I think it was. Yeah, it wasn't It wasn't one of his more exciting fights. It was on the undercard of Bern, uh, Brian McGee against Roman 
Araymi, and I think it was that one. So yeah, that was, and they fought twice. I think he fought Marty Rosian in a rematch again, another rematch that they brought him back to France. So you, you're quite right there. Oh dear, good old Kiko. Right, boys, uh, let's close it up for the evening. Let's say thank you to everybody who's been hanging around in the chat. We had Danny Young there, just jumped in at the end. Don't forget, you can hear this on Patreon. Uh, we'll put it up on YouTube and on the sports social link as well. So it goes out to iTunes uh, or whatever they call it these days, Spotify, etc. So the unwashed masses can have a listen to it like Michael Thompson did. He was in the chat for the evening. So was Captain Casual. That is Damo. Matt Butters was on the call. Thank you to him. Thank you to Des. Thank you to Take Ames for jumping on. And also to Matty DiGelonardo. We'll be back on Sunday evening. I've been Steve Wellings. Always a pleasure. As I said, if you want to join us, come over to patreon.com forward slash boxing asylum and you can jump on the next Nutters chat whenever that may be. We'll catch you all again. Stay safe out there. Same time, same place and goodbye. Sports Social Podcast Network.